1907, a young doctor named Henry Cotton stepped through the gates of the Trenton State Hospital as its new superintendent. In that year, the asylum was more like a jail than anything we would recognize as a hospital. Patients spent all day in dimly lit cells, more often than not in restraints. But Cotton wanted to change all that. He wanted to modernize the treatment of the insane. Because what he saw at Trenton appalled him. More than 90 women at the hospital were confined in straitjackets. Cotton considered this barbaric. He released those patients and threw away more than 700 restraints. Because under his leadership, the insane would be treated with dignity. Years later, he would write, Hospital surroundings should be as cheerful as possible, and all relics of asylum methods should be abolished. There should be sane surroundings for the insane. He decreed patients should receive plenty of fresh air and sunshine. He had the staff meet every day to discuss patient care, which was an important innovation. Where before there had been irons, Dr. Cotton would bring physical exercise and recreation. And he intended to give them, for the first time, real treatment for their madness. He would cure the underlying cause of their illness. Under Dr. Cotton's leadership, what he called the age of iron that saw patients in shackles, locked away and forgotten, would come to an end. But today, Dr. Cotton is remembered not as a progressive reformer. Instead, he is someone that the profession of psychiatry would prefer to forget. Because Cotton's legacy would turn out to be one of mutilation and death. And in the end, history would question whether it was, in fact, Cotton who was insane. In 1907, the age of iron ended, and the age of the knife began. It's the Forgotten History Podcast. Most of what happened in today's episode took place on the grounds of the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital, which is located on Bear Tavern Road on the outskirts of the city. It's still a mental hospital today. Its oldest buildings date back to 1848 when it was called the New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum. Before the hospital was established by Dorothea Dix, there was not much in the way of treatment for the mentally ill. If people thought you were crazy, you were kept in a jail or confined in the home of a relative, maybe in a barn or an outbuilding somewhere. They would just shut you away. The establishment of an asylum was an improvement over the conditions that ex- existed before, but the doctors there still had little idea how to help the patients under their care. People tried all kinds of remedies, but nothing worked. When Cotton came along, he brought with him the belief that there was a better way to treat psychiatric patients, one based on science. He wrote, Forbidding as the problem may seem, it is our intention to show not only that there is hope for the recovery of many of these patients, now considered incurable, but also that if the methods herein presented are adopted early by the profession at large, much insanity will be prevented. Cotton was a disciple of Adolf Meyer of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, who was one of the most influential psychiatrists of the 19th century and the inventor of occupational therapy. He thought that mental illness was not just a pathology of the brain, but was the result of a complex interaction of biological and mental factors. But unlike his mentor, Cotton believed that insanity had purely biological causes. He thought that the mind and the brain were one and the same. He believed that treating the mental factors behind mental illness was a waste of time. 
The mental picture has been subjected to the closest analysis, and every possible form of psychic treatment has been tried and proved useless, he wrote. Uh, that's psychic meaning of the mind, not like the Long Island medium psychic. He also speaks out against another popular theory of mental illness at the time, which was the hereditary one, that if you were crazy, your kids would be crazy too. This theory led to the eugenics movement, which is another dark chapter in medical history, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Cotton didn't have any real evidence disproving the hereditary theory, but he dismissed it because if it was true, then there was nothing that could be done to cure the mentally ill, and that was not acceptable to him. He concluded that mental illness must have a physical cause in the brain. He said, It is true that in the last analysis, all disturbances of function must be capable of explanation in terms of physical or chemical changes in the body, cells, and fluids. He wasn't completely wrong about this. Experiments were showing that some mental disorders were accompanied by easily observable defects in the brain, such as paresis, syphilis infection, sclerotic brain disease, alcohol poisoning. And even today, we can scan the brains of psychiatric patients, and we see that, for example, schizophrenic patients have enlarged ventricles. Their brains are literally dying, although we don't know exactly why it's happening. I have to explain Cotton's reasoning here, because if I were to just tell you what he did then it would seem totally crazy and barbaric. It's still nearly impossible to understand how anyone could have thought it was a good idea, but there was a twisted kind of logic to it, as the science was understood at the time, so bear with me. Doctors had realized that bacterial infections produced toxins that could spread throughout the body and cause problems, kind of like how in a very drunk person, alcohol can be present in the bloodstream, but if you remove the alcohol, the body resumes normal functioning. So they thought maybe some diseases were actually the result of infections somewhere in the body that were causing toxins to enter the bloodstream. Maybe you could cure those diseases by getting rid of the infections. And if the disease were caused by infections and mental illness were just another disease, Kahn thought that maybe he could cure it by finding the body's hidden infections and cutting them out. Now, Cotton would start by pulling a few teeth. Often these would be perfectly healthy teeth, but which he thought were infected somehow. Many times this remedy did not work, but this did not cause Cotton to doubt his theory. Instead, he would just pull more teeth, including seemingly healthy ones, often removing all the teeth completely. And if a toothless patient was not cured, he would move on to organs he suspected. Out would come the tonsils. If the madness persisted, he would start on other organs the testicles, the ovary, gallbladder, stomachs, and large parts of the colon and cervix. Cotton wrote a book about all this. It was published by Princeton University Press. It was called The Defective Delinquent and Insane, The Relation of Focal Infections to Their Causation, Treatment, and Prevention. And it's full of charts and graphs that supposedly prove his theories and the effectiveness of his treatments. But these are all faulty because back then they did not even have good clinical trial methods. The book is also full of case studies, which are interesting, but they're harrowing reading. Here's one of them. Woman with prolonged depression, but had two suicide attempts. No thought for her husband, and was too self-centered to be interested in his affairs. As a result, the husband became interested in other women. Three months after admission to the state hospital, she recovered following the removal of her infected tonsils, her infected teeth having been extracted on admission. The change was most pronounced. When admitted, she was thin, emaciated, 
and spent her time standing in the corner of her room, taking no interest in her surroundings, whining and crying. She gained rapidly in weight, and her appearance changed from very pitiful sight to one of great attractiveness. I feel bad for this patient. It sounds like her life was already miserable before Dr. Cotton started performing unnecessary surgery on her. Um, he goes on to claim in his report that the treatment worked perfectly. He says her husband brought his mistress to live with the family and tried to get the patient thrown in the asylum again. His report continues. Our sympathy was aroused, and on investigating the circumstances, we found her statement correct and not delusional, as her husband would have had us believe. She accepted a position in the hospital for the time being, hoping matters would improve. And I think this means he hired her to work at the hospital. He goes on. Finally, she returned home, and after a year or more of extremely bitter experience, the situation adjusted itself, and there was no further trouble. She recovered in the fall of 1918, and in spite of this harrowing experience, she never had any return of her former depression. This patient was far from the only one to go under the knife. This was the standard treatment he prescribed for his patients. I couldn't find a total figure for how many people he treated this way, but in one year, the hospital did 6,472 tooth extractions, 542 tonsillectomies, and 79 colectomies. That's the removal of the colon. Cotton claims that the depressed woman from this case study and many others besides had no further trouble after they were released from the hospital. But should we believe him? Well, eventually someone did look into this question. But at the beginning, almost everyone accepted it. And what about this idea of infections causing mental illness? Is there anything to it? People at the time thought there was. Focal infection or chronic infection is an infection without evidence to the patient. That's no pus, no swelling, no fever. In modern medicine, there is such a thing as a focal infection in which a localized infection in one area causes problems elsewhere. Um, but in the early 20th century, doctors blamed almost every kind of condition on focal infections. And they removed apparently healthy teeth and tonsils in order to treat distant problems. Cotton uh, brought this mania into the world of psychiatry. He was extremely confident that he was practicing good scientific method. And this comes through in his writing. Um, and if you read modern scientific papers, they're full of hedges and qualifiers, like almost to a maddening degree, because scientists don't want to seem overconfident or take their findings too far. But Cotton is full of absolute certainty. He says things like, The importance of oral infection today cannot be doubted and is recognized by the most progressive men in the medical profession. Another thing about him was that he was a social Darwinist, and that was also very common at the time. He divided the world into what he called effectives and defectives. He said that the defectives were like the cannon fodder in historical armies, uh, that in militaries, the fit seized command by virtue of superior intelligence. He wrote in his book that because in most armies there were five officers for every 95 soldiers, that human effectives compose 5% of society, the remainder being utterly dependent upon this small group for protection and progress. O'Connor also had this weird fixation on teeth. He blamed dentistry for many mental illnesses, and he didn't understand why dentists tried to save teeth instead of just pulling them all out. He thought that by installing crowns, Dentists were allowing infected teeth to cause problems throughout the body. Uh, he even thought that all impacted wisdom teeth were always infected. He blamed impacted wisdom teeth for peculiar personalities and abnormal dispositions noticed in cases of dementia, years before psychosis as such develops. He also says, 
We should emphasize the fact that in young patients with psychosis and the juvenile moral delinquents and some pseudo-feeble-minded and subnormal children, impacted molars have been present in a large majority of cases. So do you see the flaw in the logic there? Because the truth is that most people have impacted wisdom teeth, whether or not they're juvenile moral delinquents. So here's another case study. A Princeton University student became maniacal and he got x-rays that showed impacted wisdom teeth. He went home and recovered somewhat, and then went to another institution. And Cotton writes, No attention has been paid to the gastrointestinal tract, and there is little hope for recovery until this infection is eradicated. And personally, I think this Princeton student is lucky that he escaped with his internal organs intact. Not everyone wanted their teeth out. Sometimes they were dragged kicking and screaming to the operating theater. This was before informed consent was a thing. This even comes through in Cotton's own case reports. In one case, a 20-year-old man came to him with anemia and some other health problems, and he took out some teeth, but the man did not improve. He returned to Cotton, who suggested removing his molars as well. The boy protested when extraction of these teeth was proposed, because the extraction of the other teeth had not benefited him. Yeah, no kidding. Cotton goes on. I could not give him positive assurance that extracting the eight molars would benefit him. But I told him that nothing else could save him. So the science in this book that he wrote is mostly nonsense. At one point, he blames humans walking on two legs for the colon becoming exhausted and prone to infection. Uh, sometimes patients would not be cured at first, so he kept giving them more and more drastic surgery. In his book, he recounts a 44-year-old woman who had vertigo. First to go were all of her upper teeth and the molars and the bicuspids of her lower jaw. That didn't work. So out came her tonsils, but the dizziness returned, and this time, Cotton removed large parts of her colon, and he claims that finally cured her. Surgeries like these were, of course, very dangerous, and in the 1920s, before the advent of antibiotics, the risk of infection was enormous. And so you would think that these procedures, barbaric as they were, could only be carried out on the unwilling, but that was true in many cases, but not all. Cotton was an incredibly successful self-promoter. He claimed that 85% of the patients he operated on were cured by his treatments. So many mental illness sufferers and their family members actually begged to be admitted to the state hospital so they could be cured. And he wasn't some quack operating on the fringes. He received worldwide acclaim for his work and was generally hailed as a pioneer in the treatment of mental illness. However, not everyone was taken in by Cotton's claims. Skepticism quietly grew. The editor of Southern Medicine and Surgery wrote to a colleague that Cotton was himself infected with red ants and that he was, quote, injudicious in his attitude and unsound in his reasoning. Meyer, Cotton's mentor, said that the patients cured supposedly by his surgical methods were actually responding to the improved conditions at the state hospital. Eventually, the critics became impossible to ignore. And in 1925, the New Jersey State Senate held hearings at the state hospital. As described in the Encyclopedia of Asylum Therapeutics, the senators heard from, quote, a parade of disgruntled employees, malicious ex-patients, and their families, who testified in damning detail about the brutality, forced and botched surgery, debility, and death. Although vigorously defended by a few of his peers, the hearings took a toll on Cotton. He became increasingly erratic and disoriented, and was quietly removed from his duties as medical superintendent of the Trenton State Hospital. Now, as I mentioned earlier, one skeptic of Cotton was his former mentor, Dr. Meyer. Uh, he dispatched a young psychiatrist, Phyllis Greenacre, to review Cotton's records. 
She found the patient files in great disarray, but from what records she saw, she discovered that Cotton had greatly exaggerated his cure rate. As a sample of his work, she focused on 62 patients who had undergone surgery. 17 died immediately. Several more lingered for months before dying. Only five had recovered completely. Three more were improved but still symptomatic, and the rest were unchanged. Greenacre concluded that the lowest recovery rate and the highest death rate occurs among the functional cases who have been thoroughly treated. Basically what she was saying was that the treatment didn't work whatsoever. And what about the patients who were supposedly cured, like the depressed woman in the hut with the bad husband? Greenacre tracked down and interviewed many of these people and found that, in fact, they were actually no better than before. During his absence from the hospital during the trial, Cotton appeared to go mad himself, and of course, the cure for madness was his usual treatment. He removed his own teeth. And, for good measure, he removed the teeth of his wife and two of his children. Unfortunately, the committee ignored Greenacre amid what the encyclopedia calls a barrage of obfuscating data, learned opinions, and ad feminine attacks by Cotton's peers. In other words, they were incredibly sexist. They made a mighty effort to defend Cotton and discredit Greenacre to the committee. And despite Greenacre's findings, Meyer never followed up on his suspicions. Greenacre herself is pretty interesting. She was a prominent Freudian psychiatrist who had a long career during which she studied surgical addiction, among other things. And after the hearings blew over, seemingly leaving Cotton unscathed, his madness went away and he was ready to work again. He was given permission to resume his surgery. His fame was seemingly greater than ever before. He lectured all around America and Europe on his methods, and patients continued to flock to him. He even built a private practice for wealthy patients who couldn't otherwise get into the state hospital. But by then, other psychiatrists were starting to become alarmed by what Cotton was doing. A Swiss doctor visited the asylum and was appalled by the sight of Cotton's toothless patients and his willingness to perform invasive surgery at scant signs of infection. There was a pushback against the idea of undetectable infections that cause illness elsewhere in the body. The hospital board investigated Cotton and examined the records of 645 surgical patients and found that not only did the patients have an extremely high death rate, more than 44%, but that the patients who had received no treatment had a much better rate of recovery. This was a terrible fatality rate even in those days. And Cotton made excuses for this saying that psychiatry patients had been weakened by their conditions. In the midst of all this, Cotton died of a heart attack in 1933. The Trenton Evening Times death notice called him a great pioneer whose humanitarian influence was, and will continue to be, of such monumental proportions. And sadly, both of his sons, whose teeth he had extracted, died by suicide later on. The Mayo Clinic and the British Medical Association, however, continued to endorse his ideas. The AMA praised him, as did the New York Times. It took many years for the legacy of Dr. Cotton to fade. According to the book Madhouse by Andrew Skull, tooth extraction continued at the state hospital as late as 1960. So, what to make of all this? Where did Henry Cotton go wrong? Maybe an extreme case of, if you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. One of the few effective things that medicine could do at the time was surgery. So this fix was applied to everything. It's also worth keeping in mind that all this took place during a gruesome era in the history of medicine. Important scientific advancements were being made, but doctors took this knowledge down many dead ends that turned out to be terrible mistakes. 
For example, x-rays and radiation were discovered around this time, and there was a fad for using radiation to cure various diseases. For a while, everyone thought that radiation was good for you. People would actually go to spas and deliberately inhale radioactive gas. So it's possible to look at the case of Henry Cotton and conclude that the lesson is that science itself is fatally flawed. Because Cotton managed to win over large parts of the scientific community with his lousy research. It's also possible to read it as an indictment of the profession of psychiatry, which never disciplined this rogue practitioner and even accepted many of his ideas. And in some ways, we're still no better off than we were in the 1920s when it comes to understanding mental illness. We still don't know exactly why people develop schizophrenia or many other mental disorders. The standard treatments that we have, which include an array of, of drugs, don't work for everyone, and many of the drugs have terrible side effects. But in many important ways, things have gotten better. Uh, the development of pharmaceutical drugs has allowed real progress to be made, and many people who would have been confined in these terrible places previously are now able to live on their own and live full lives. And the laws about involuntary commitment have also changed. In most places, you can't be confined to an institution just for acting crazy. You have to pose a threat to yourself or someone else. So the number of hospitalized patients has fallen dramatically since that time. In 1954, 4,237 people were confined at the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital alone. Today, that hospital only has 376 beds. So... This is just my opinion, but what I think the Cotton case really shows is that doing the work of science, the real work of systematically testing ideas, is incredibly important. And that any type of supposed miracle cure should always be thoroughly tested before it's unleashed on the public. Because while Henry Cotton may be gone, there are plenty of people out there who are still selling quack cures that have not been thoroughly tested, and they're doing as much harm as Cotton ever did. As I was writing this episode... I heard about a woman in Australia. She was a 50-year-old nurse. Her name was Helen Lawson, and by all accounts, she was a very intelligent woman. She was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, which is often fatal. But instead of going through the standard treatment, she went to a Henry Cotton type of guy named Dennis Wayne Jensen. He claimed to have successfully treated many cases of cancer using this stuff called black salve. Jensen began treating her by rubbing her abdomen with this black salve stuff, which is marketed as a natural cancer cure. And over time, this salve began eating away at her flesh. She was visibly getting worse. One report said, all across her abdomen, almost up to her ribcage, was raw, mutilated, bubbling flesh. One day she collapsed and was rushed to the hospital where she died. The black salve didn't work, and it never could, because black salve is just a caustic agent. Sure, it kills cancer cells, just like it says, but it also kills any cells it comes in contact with. It's literally poison. The Australian government is investigating the case and has ordered Jensen to stop practicing medicine, which seems like pretty light punishment, if you ask me. And unfortunately, you can still do a quick internet search and discover that many people are still promoting Black Solve because it's a so-called natural alternative, and you can even buy it online. So now, just as then, it pays to be skeptical of anything that hasn't been properly tested, and doubly skeptical of anyone who claims to have found a single cure for all disease, because they're probably another Henry Cotton. So I'm listening to the story and, you know, you the main word or number, I guess, that I heard was 1907. I mean, this is barely 100 years ago. I think the average person listening might have thought that this is something that happened 200 years ago or 
150 years ago at least. I mean, we're not really that far removed from this kind of medicine being practiced. Yeah, it's almost in living memory, this stuff. And I don't know if you've ever talked with your grandparents about going to the doctor, but like even back in the 1920s and 30s, they were still doing completely crazy stuff. Um, and we're just barely out of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm thinking too about like the, the, the 1800s uh, and how prevalent things like phrenology, which is the idea that your skull shape determined what kind of personality you had. And then before that, there was a physiognomy, which was the f idea that people could tell your character by looking at you. Yeah. Um, you know, all of these things are really along the same lines. It's people searching for answers as to why they are the way they are. It's the search for the truth behind human nature. Yeah, and... It, it's like that search takes us down so many dead ends and so it's hard to tell in the moment what is going what is going to turn out to actually be true and what is going to be the thing that 100 years from now people are going to say how could they have ever believed this <laughs> how could they've ever done this to people like henry cotton like I, I i i tried to sort of understand where he was coming from because at the time maybe it seemed completely reasonable but it even though it was completely crazy yeah, like somewhere down the line, like SSRIs or some other kind of treatment, people will be like, how could they have ever taken these mood-altering uh, drugs that, that, that ruin, not ruin, but like you said, they have side effects. Yeah. I mean, they alter you in other ways, and it's like a constant negotiation with as you try to feel better about yourself. Yep. You know, one of the things that you also said was cotton was a kind of a master of marketing yeah yeah you can kind i mean we can see the same exact things going on today in mega churches or multi-level marketing schemes yep. even it's like what worked for cotton then being confident and persuasive that hasn't gone away even if yeah. his treatments have yeah yeah and i'm like i just brought up one case this australian one which was especially horrible but that's far from rare. Like, this is happening all over America right now. There are just people telling people to do crazy things on the Internet that ultimately are harmful for them. Uh, but if they, they sound confident, if they make a YouTube video where they speak persuasively, people are going to believe them and they're going to go do it. And there's, like, virtually no regulation of this. Like, practicing medicine without a license is never enforced against people who say that they're holistic uh herbal practitioner or something like that um or that they're running an innovative uh cure for for cancer that that the mainstream doctors don't want you to know about and you know they're never punished and they just go on so it's it's really up to the consumer to be aware of all this and to be skeptical and and to not not believe things that seem too good to be true yeah, and I think the thing, though, that complicates it so much is that in the end, even Henry Cotton and even this woman in Australia, it is scientific method in a way because now we know that tooth <laughs> extraction and caustic 
uh, salves don't work. Yep. Uh, it's breakage in a way. It seems dramatic, the number of people that Cotton killed. But mm-hmm. over the millennia, the truth is that Henry Cotton did us a service. <laughs> we know that removing colons does not cure uh, anybody's mental health issues. Yeah, let's check that off the list. I mean, and, and the thing, too, is uh, I'm thinking of someone close to me right now who, who recently had cancer surgery, and they had their options. They had radiation. They had surgery to remove the, the affected part, um, or they had an experimental uh, laser treatment that's popular in Europe but mm-hmm. barely approved in the U.S. And this person was like, I want to do that laser treatment i want to try the newest thing because Mm -hmm. all they can do is fear that the things that they've heard of before didn't work so i guess there's that sense of it as well yeah i think um i was struggling to understand why so many people were eager to go get their teeth removed and stuff and i think part of it was they bought into the marketing and part of it was just desperation because nothing else worked and i think people sometimes feel the same thing about especially cancer treatment and things where the doctor really doesn't have an answer for you. Um, So if the doctor doesn't have an answer, if the science-based guy can't tell you what to do and someone else does have an answer, even if it's ultimately the wrong one, you might go with that instead, understandably, if not correctly. Right, and weirdly enough, it's possible that something that Cotton did along the way, someone else who is maybe a little bit more rigorous with their testing used to come up with a better treatment. I mean, you just, Mm -hmm. but like what you said really resonates. It's definitely one of those things that, you know, people get so desperate. One of the other things that I just couldn't, I mean, it's just so pervasive through what you were uh, saying is, is how much of a role sexism plays in all of this. I mean, it underlies the entire story, not yeah. just the way that they tried to smear Dr. Greenacre, who was a woman, but also I'm, I'm assuming, and, and you gave a lot of uh, times when the patients were women, yeah. I'm assuming that, you know, husbands and their historical, uh, hysterical wives yeah. were, were being kind of, you know, thrown under the bus here basically. And then there's just the, the, the good old boy networks that propped up cotton and kept, trying to validate him even yep. after the data said otherwise. I mean, even maybe the U.S. Congress is still yeah. kind of an oh, old boy oh, network absol- of this type. absolutely goes on today. <laughs> so uh, we, we still have a long way to go. I think that's one of the things that this story, um, it, it seems all too close to us today. Yeah, like that woman, like this doesn't exist anymore, but there used to be a diagnosis of hysteria. Like that was not just slang. That was a, uh, a condition that you could be diagnosed with meaning that there is a problem with your uterus that was causing you to go crazy because you were a woman and your uterus was making you nuts. And, uh, and and people would get diagnosed with that and there were all kinds of weird treatments for it. And, you know, like this, this the lady in the case study, like she had legitimate reasons for being depressed. Like mm-hmm. she had a horrible life. And, uh, but, but, you know, instead of trying to help her with her problems, they just like, this surgery on her it's terrible yeah the the bind you know what that's really where it is is we have to get over this binary approach to health it's not about i'm 
I'm sick or I'm cured. And that's what I think me- the mental health profession has gone a long way toward trying to explain to people. It's like, we can help you, but we can't cure you. Uh, but I think that patience, and, and then you take it to even things like the autism spectrum. Like mm-hmm. people still believe they misunderstand what's even happening and they yeah. believe that there's a cure for autism when in all likelihood it's not a disease. I mean, it isn't a disease. It's not something that can be cured. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something that therapy can help. So, I mean, you know, but people still demand a cure. And it's, you know, it it it's just, uh, yeah, I, I guess the more we talk, the more I can't stop thinking about how uh, <laughs> in many ways we're not really that far. This is a dramatic story, but we're really not that far from, from this world at all. Yep. So we'll just wait and see what the next, uh, what the next med scientist um, of the future is going to be. Yes, we will. All right. Well, thanks, Joe. Yeah. I'm Dick and Hyatt. And I'm Joe Amansky. Forgotten History is a production of Community News Service and is recorded in the studios of 107.7 The Bronx in beautiful Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Our theme music is The Quiet Earth by Thomas Barandon. Special thanks to The Bronx' Eric Weinstein who engineered this episode. Subscribe to Forgotten History wherever you get your podcasts or find us on the web at www.communitynews.org. <laughs>